Let's pray together. Father, I feel very blessed to be here, to stand here, to be a part of Desiring God Community Church 10th anniversary. I feel like I've taken a, a bath of grace this afternoon as the stories of your faithfulness have cascaded over my head and then been prayed for upstairs and then sung your praises here. Thank you. And now, Lord, I ask that you would do in this room far more than would be in proportion to me. Grant, I pray, that the ripple effect of this message in the lives of those folks who are gathered here would be eternal and global. Lord, you have people here in this room by appointment. And I'm going to be eager to hear the stories, if I'm alive, in the years to come of where people wind up because of what they hear now in your service. So come and hallow your name and advance your kingdom and get your saving will done in this world. I ask this through Christ. Amen. My wife and daughter and I, wife of 45 years and daughter of 17 years, are living for a year in Knoxville right now. We're just outside Knoxville, so I drove over here this morning, four and a half for four hours and 40 minutes or so. It took me to get over. And we're renting a house over there from a cousin of my wife, and on the second floor of the house, at the east end, there's an empty bedroom. It was empty when we got there. And I staked claim to it for my study, since there's five bedrooms in this house. And um, on the east wall, I put a table, which I'm using for my desk. And on the north and south wall, I put a bookcase. And in the corner by the east window, I put a little prayer bench that I built in 1975 and have had it with me ever since. And on this prayer bench, there lies one book. And it isn't this one because I carry this one with me and I take it to the prayer bench when I go. The book that's lying on the prayer bench and has been lying there for probably 20 years, is Operation World. And if you're not familiar with Operation World, edited in the seventh edition now by Jason Mandrick, it used to be by Patrick Johnstone, the subtitle is, to these 1,000 pages, The Definitive Prayer Guide to Every Nation. It gives vital information on all the countries of the world concerning the people groups that are unreached in those countries, the political situation of those countries, the religious situation of those countries, and the countries correlate to the days of the year so that in a year you can pray for the whole world. The reason I mention that is because I have been through it numerous times and 
am struck, deeply struck, every time by two great facts, which are informing what I'm going to say here. One fact is that the work of missions, that is the reaching of the unreached peoples of the world with the gospel of Christ and the planting of the church there so that every people group has its own indigenous force of evangelism and church growth is not finished, dramatically not finished. Seeing how many of you stood for the perspectives, I assume that a lot of you in this room know that there are, I'm going to use the numbers from the IMB, the International Mission Board, 11,290 people groups in toto. There would be more if you broke them up according to where they land in countries, but if you strip away all the borders of the world and ignore those, it comes to around 11,000 people groups, ethno-linguistic people groups, the kind of groups that you find in Revelation 5, 9. Every people, language, tribe, and nation he died to ransom. People, tribe, tongue, nation, all those clusters out there, about 11,000. 6,909 of those, according to IMB, are unreached. That is less than 2% evangelical. And of those, 3,010, they say now, are unengaged, which is probably the most serious number, namely the ones that have no one yet implementing a plan to reach them. There are no missionaries there. There are no churches there. There are no evangelizing Christians there that we know of. And nobody has yet implemented a plan to get any missionaries there. 3,000 of those groups, about 300 of those are people groups of over 100,000 people. So those are the things, fact number one, that stands out as you pray through the world every, every day. Namely, we have work to do. It is a great unfinished task. Second fact, and this one you might be more surprised at, is that time after time after time, as you read Jason Mandrick's and Patrick Johnstone's statements about the condition of the church in all the countries of the world, time after time after time, they say things like, superficiality in conversions and inadequate follow-up of those who profess faith in Christ. Or, another quote, insufficient leaders for the churches to be able both to teach the believers and to mobilize them for evangelism. In other words, massive nominalism, massive thinness of doctrinal knowledge and massive void of leaders who can fire the church and, and advance the church. So while we have made stunning advances in missions among the peoples of the world, there still remains, even among the younger reached churches, so much weakness and so much superficiality and leadership void. 
Now, my sense is that those two facts, unfinished task, thin, superficial, doctrinal knowledge and leadership weakness are connected. Namely, this way, that while we have poured huge energies into planting the church, often that energy has not been corresponded to with a deepening of those churches so that in the next 50 years or so that have their own schools, that have their own seminaries, that have their own, their own PhDs, their own people who know Greek and Hebrew, able to train churches and, and mobilize their people. But 150 years later, they're still dependent. Why? We have the notion sometimes at least I have had this notion, that among the third world churches, the vibrant global south, there is life and vitality and power and movement. And there's a sense in which that's true. There are churches like that in every country of the world. But what you also find is not long after that crest of the wave, you get the same problem of thinness and superficiality and lack of depth and leadership void. We have the notion in our churches in Charlotte and Minneapolis and Knoxville, we have the notion that what's really needed is the movement of the Spirit by the Word to preach the gospel and get people saved, which of course is absolutely right. But it isn't always accompanied by the conviction that the blessings that we have here, that we just take for granted concerning ongoing theological education for lay people as well as clergy, won't just happen. And therefore, where it doesn't happen, the church remains dependent. And where it remains dependent on outsiders, it's not going to be fully indigenous and fully engaging its people. Paul said in Ephesians 4 that the only way Christians cease to be tossed to and fro by the winds of false teaching and by the cunning of men is if they come to the full manhood in knowledge, the knowledge of the Son of God. And that's not in the context just for pastors. That's for everybody. So I think... The key question that I want to address is what kind of knowledge, what kind of doctrinal thickness rather than thinness would be helpful for churches to have? Because where churches that are sending churches are doctrinally thin, 
The missionaries they raise up will tend to be doctrinally thin, and the churches planted among the peoples will tend to be doctrinally thin, and the saints in those churches will be doctrinal thin, and thus set out for all manner of false teaching and nominalism in the years to come. I'll just give you a concrete example. When I first visited Cameroon in 1985, I was going to visit Wycliffe missionaries, my brother-in-law. He became my brother-in-law since then. Um, And I was thinking in my head, naively I suppose, that Wycliffe is a cutting-edge, frontline, unreached people's mission. Well, you know what it was in Cameroon? It was a church renewal movement. The church had been there 150 years. They had no Bible, and therefore the churches all over were very weak, very vulnerable to false teaching. What, what, what had we been doing for these 150 years? What, what concept of mission results in a church 150 years later still totally dependent on Western missionaries to staff their Bible colleges? So ever since that time, I've just thought over and over again, something's amiss here. And I know that the solution to this kind of thing is not uh, monolithic. That is, what I'm going to talk about tonight is one piece of it. I know that you'd need to have a conference on prayer. I know that you'd need to have a conference on uh, language and, and culture. I know you'd need to have one on, on the Holy Spirit and reviving and boldness and risk. And, but, but I'm going to address in the minutes we have together tonight just this issue of doctrinal substance and its necessity for long-term effective missionary activity and the reaching of the unreached peoples of the world in ways that put them on their feet with the Bible in their hand, able to raise up their own leaders, grow their own churches, and hold their own amid all the challenges that are coming in this century. Give me an example of William Carey. Because when I say doctrinal depth and theological education, I'm not thinking Every layperson needs to get a theological degree. William Carey had zero formal theological education. Zero. And he was brilliant theologically in every other way. And he was deep doctrinally. I know people with theological degrees that are theologically superficial, and I know laymen and women who are profound theologians and have never been to any theological school. It has to do with how you read your Bible and what books you read about the Bible and how you think and how serious you are about knowing God. It doesn't have to do with degrees at the end of your name. That's neither here nor there. So William Carey as you know, is the father of modern missions in 1792-3, he heads for India, never comes home. 
Forty years he pours out his life there, translating the Bible and planting the church in India. In 1797, so he's been there about four years or so, he is confronted by a Brahmin, a Hindu sage. He had just finished preaching on Acts 14.16 and Acts 17.30 where it says, God formerly allowed all men everywhere to go their own way, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And after his sermon, the Brahmin stood up and said, I think God should repent for not sending us the gospel sooner. Now, if you were Carrie, what would you say? I'm going to read you what he said, because his answer is absolutely stunning. And it could only be given by somebody who had devoted serious thought to issues in the Bible. Not issues hanging around in theological institutions or anything. It's just, this is not about that, okay? This is not about that. This is about knowing our Bible and thinking about God in the Bible so that when people in Charlotte or Shanghai or Bangalore ask us a serious question about some issue in the Bible, like the course of redemptive history and why God would focus on Israel, for example, for 2,000 years and let the nations go. Why? I mean, how about the Great Commission earlier and the Holy Spirit poured out in Genesis? He didn't do it that way. We should ponder these things. Well, he had, and here's what he said. I suppose, I added, suppose a kingdom had been long overrun by the enemies of its true king. And he, though possessed by sufficient power to conquer them, should yet suffer them to prevail and establish themselves as much as they could desire. Would not the valor and wisdom of that king be far more conspicuous in exterminating them than it would have been if he had opposed them at first and prevented their entering the country. Thus, by the diffusion of gospel light, the wisdom, power, and grace of God will be more conspicuous in overcoming such deep-rooted idolatries and in destroying all the darkness and vice which have so universally prevailed in this country than they would have been if all had not been suffered to walk in their own ways for so many ages past. (sighs) That's an amazing answer. The question right now is not whether it's a right answer. It's the question of, wow, that man is no blow-off. He has thought profoundly about the sovereignty of God. And he's ready to talk about it with a Hindu sage with zero formal theological education. That man's going to plant a kind of church that might have some substance to it. He grew up in an atmosphere where that was the case. 
Whose theology did he cut his teeth on? Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards had died 40 years earlier. And he had written a biography of David Brainerd, who was a missionary of the Indians, and that biography had inspired Carey. And all the Baptists in England were reading Brainerd's biography. And then he got on the boat to go to India, inspired with this kind of massive God-centered theology of Jonathan Edwards, and he wrote in his diary, June 24, 1793, on the boat, saw a number of flying fish, have begun to write Bengali and read Edward's sermons and Cooper's poems, mind tranquil and serene. Well, no wonder he had something to say to the Brahmin. He's reading the sermons of Jonathan Edwards on the boat for inspiration and for tranquility of mind. In other words, there's a certain kind of concern in his heart and in his Head. That was the key note of all the missionaries, Andrew Fuller, Samuel Pierce, John Sutcliffe, and William Carey in those days. And the generation after them, same theology. David Livingston, Adoniram Judson, Alexander Duff, John Patton. They all embraced this massive, deep, rich, doctrinally laden biblical theology. And so that's what I think we could do well to recover and go deeper with. It's what I want to give my life to, to the end. So here's what I want to do in the time we have. I want to take you to John 10. All that is to persuade you that the kind of theology that's in John 10 is important. <laughs> Missiologically important, because John 10 is an absolutely stunning pace to go for missions. And if you have your Bible, I invite you to open them to John 10, and we're going to focus most of our attention on verse 16, but we're going to put it in context for a little while, and then we're going to draw out four lessons from it. So here's the verse, John 16. I think this is the great missionary verse of John, John's gospel. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. In the context, that's probably referring to, I have Gentile sheep, not just Jewish sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will heed my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now to feel the full force of what he's saying there, I want to point to six contextual facts. And as I point to them, what you will see emerging is a, is a building theology of salvation in John's gospel. These are just contextual observations from John 10 about this verse and the way it's expressed. So number one, Jesus calls himself a shepherd in the context. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. Now, what is he referring to? The good shepherd. Anything in particular? Is he just self-identifying with a metaphor that he's a shepherd? It is more than metaphor. He's referring probably to Ezekiel 34. 
And the promise goes like this in Ezekiel 34, 22. God is saying, I will save my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. I will judge between sheep and sheep. We're going to see that. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. David's been long dead. I will set up my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So I think when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. And Ezekiel says, I'm going to set up a shepherd, the servant, the son of David. Jesus said, here he is. I am that shepherd. That's the first contextual observation. Here's number two. Some sheep are Christ's and some are not. He said he was going to distinguish between sheep and sheep back in Ezekiel. Now look at verses 3 and 4, right in the middle of verse 3. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. Or verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. So not all the people in Israel are Christ's sheep. They're sheep, but they're not Christ's sheep. They don't belong to him. Some were his, some were not. Observation number three. The reason some sheep belong to Jesus, so that he could call them mine, my own, is that the Father had given them to the Son. Verse 29. My Father who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now this is John's way of talking about the doctrine of election. God has chosen some, and he gives them to to the Son. He gives them to Jesus. Chapter 17, verse 6 says the same thing. Jesus says to the Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. That's his way of talking about election. Yours they were. And you gave them to me. And they have kept my word. Or chapter 6, verse 37. Same thing. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And him who comes to me, (coughs) I will not cast out. So the Father has them, they are his, and he gives them to the Son. And if he gives them to the Son, they come to the Son. If they come to the Son, he won't cast them out. So you see, emerging here, a, a doctrine of salvation. Father has chosen them, they are his, 
He gives them to the Son. The Son accepts them. Observation number four. Since Jesus knows those who are His, He calls them by name. And since they are His, they recognize His voice and they follow. So let's read three and four again. The sheep hear His voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Or verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So now be sure you you see the thrust of these verses. Being one of Christ's sheep enables you to respond to his call, not the other way around. I think I grew up thinking totally the other way around. Like, if I respond to his call, I become his sheep. But here, It says that they are his sheep. The sheep hear my voice. He calls his own sheep by name. He leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's how they recognize the voice of the shepherd. They're his sheep. His voice, that's my shepherd. How how did you recognize his voice? How did that happen? You heard a sermon one day, or your mom shared the gospel, or Billy Graham, or you heard a, a rap song, maybe. And suddenly, he said, that, that's my master talking. That's my, that's, he's real. How did that happen? That's what this text is about. How did that happen? Look at verse 26. It's the most shocking of all to make this point. You do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. In other words, the final arrogant boast of unbelief is nullified. Because he's saying, you can't boast in your unbelief. The reason you don't believe is because you're not my sheep. It's not the other way around. You're not my sheep because you don't believe. It's that reverse. You don't believe because you're not my sheep. Fifth observation. Verse 11. That's not all he does for his sheep. Sheep is call them. He doesn't just call them. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Or verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own knows me. Know me. As the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. So now we're, we're, we've built it from election 
through giving to the Son and the calling of the Son and belief on the Son and following the Son and the Son dying for the sheep. Things are starting to pile up now. So let me put it in some order. And what struck me, and the reason I'm, I'm sharing this with you because it was so striking to me, is when I started to create this, I did not plan to relate it to Romans 8.30. Had no intention whatsoever. You know, those whom he foreknew... He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. But that's what's happening here. Listen. Whom the Father had made his own, he gave to the Son. And whom he gave to the Son, the Son called by name. And those whom he called, he laid down his life for them and thus justified them. One more, sixth observation from the context. On the basis of that sacrifice, he gives them eternal life. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So here's the sequence again. Put all the pieces together. Whom the Father has chosen for himself and thus possesses as his own, he gives to the Son. Whom he gives to the Son, the Son calls by name. Those whom he calls by name, he lays down his life. For them, and those for whom he lays down his life, they come. They recognize his voice, and those who come have eternal life, and nobody can take it away. This is a great salvation. It's profound, it's weighty, and the whole world needs to know this. It's funny, isn't it, that The Gospel of John is the first book we put into the hand of baby believers because it's so simple. (laughs) That is so right and so wrong. I would. I would put John in in the hand of any baby believer because John said that's why it's written. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and have life in his name. But John is the most profound book in the Bible. Now, that's an overstatement. They're all more profound than any other book, depending on which one you're swimming in at the moment, because they're all bottomless. But isn't it remarkable? It's just layer upon layer of insight so that the simplest reader can love it. Who doesn't love John 3.16? And yet John 10 takes us into eternity, both directions, and to the depths of the heart of God. It's really amazing. However, this theology that has just emerged here, massive, sovereign grace, saving from eternity to eternity, riding, conquering the so-called free will of man and drawing the sheep to the Savior so that we boast in nothing but the grace of God is fraught with 
danger. And historically, the danger has been there all the way along. And the danger is that a doctrine, a doctrine of salvation that is intended to strip us bare of all self-exaltation, of all self-reliance, of all boasting, because of the remaining corruption in our hearts, can be twisted around and made the ground of pride. So that, oh, I'm one of his own. I've been chosen. I've been given to the Son. My eyes have been opened. This is for me, and you like me, and for us. And we have our little church. And the rest of the world can go to hell. And that's why verse 16 is in the chapter. Because just when the Jewish people were experiencing that kind of us, Jesus said, I've got other sheep. Actually, I think he's saying it for his disciples' benefit. (laughs) You know how long it took them to get out of Jerusalem. Even though he told them, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. He had to bust them up with Stephen's death in order to make that happen. Because they didn't listen to this verse. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Don't you take this doctrine and make it the ground of some kind of little club. Let it be the ground of all your sacrifices to find my sheep. And they are everywhere in Charlotte and every unreached people group of the world. So, all down through the centuries, the truth has been accompanied by the abuse of the truth. It won't be any different in Charlotte. The reason when my father-in-law found out that I was a Calvinist, he had real misgivings about letting me marry his daughter, is because he grew up in Barnesville, Georgia, where the only version of so-called Calvinism that he knew was primitive Baptist because they didn't believe in missions. And I didn't blame him for not wanting me around. Well, he changed his mind after a while. Thank you for Noel. So... The Puritans come to America as the chosen people, right? We're on an errand. You know, there are coins from the Massachusetts Bay Colony whose insignia says, come over to Macedonia and help us. That's what was printed on the coins in the first Puritan colonies, meaning they saw their coming here as a missionary enterprise to establish the new Jerusalem and the new Israel among a new continent and to rescue the savages that were over there. However, when they got here, what kind of Indian evangelism happened? Nothing. Just us. We've got our land. 
We've got our new Geneva. Until God said to John Eliot, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. They're called Algonquin, and they have words that are 26 letters long, and I want you to translate the Bible. And he said, I'm 42 years old. And he said, doesn't make any difference. And between 42 and 80, he translated the whole Bible. He established Bible schools. One of the greatest tragedies in American history is the disappearance of that Indian movement. We don't have a very good track record in this land for how we handle the native folks. But God said, I've got other people on this continent, and it isn't just the Puritans. Same thing with regard to William Carey. Just when we were starting to feel especially good about ourselves, the particular Baptists in England, God broke in and said, I have other people that are not of this fold. I want you to go to India and find some of them. And just when uh, the coastlands had been reached with all these coastland missions and the church was feeling pretty good about itself, God said to Hudson Taylor, I have other people that are not of this fold. In the middle of China, not just on the edges of China, so the China Inland Mission was formed. Africa Inland Mission was formed because we were all getting satisfied with our little coastal colonies and ignoring that vast inward peoples there. And God had to shake it up again. And then he did it again in the 20th century. We were starting to get really self-satisfied that we had reached every country of the world, in and on the coast. Every country of the world has Christians in it. And then God says to Cameron Townsend, founder of Wycliffe, those countries are made up of languages and peoples, like about 7,000 languages. And guess how many have the Bible? You can count them on two hands. And everything changed. Did the same thing with Ralph Winter in 1974. My dad was at the first Lausanne conference in Switzerland, and there was a lot of upbeat, excited optimism because we were in all the countries of the world at last with the Church of Jesus Christ, and good old Ralph Winter messes everybody up, stands up and rings the bell that changed the face of missions for the next 50 years when he said, Uh, There are 17,000 people groups, that's the number he used in those days, and uh, well over half of those are unreached, and 90% of our missionaries are with the reached. And the whole place changed. And that, that concept of unreached peoples became the watchword of almost every mission agency since then, and it's all owing to Jesus saying, I have other people that are not of this fold. In other words, every time, every time I find myself in Minneapolis for 33 years as a pastor starting to feel really good about something God might be doing at Bethlehem, I think, there's two million, two million people I can drive to in 30 minutes. And when I left, there were about 50,000 Somalis, maybe six believers among them, all the rest Muslim. And I'm supposed to feel really good. (laughs) And he's saying to me, I have other people, other sheep 
that are not of this fold. I must reach them. So let me close now with these four applications or uh, ways of looking at verse 16 that will, I hope, uh, charge you, whether as a sender or a goer, because you know there are only those three kind of Christians, senders, goers, and disobedient. So whether as a sender or a goer, you be charged with this verse. So four, four observations. And just loaded, just loaded with theological freight that needs to be prayed over and thought through and lived out. Number one, Christ has a people besides those already converted. Very simple. You know this. Might seem strange to say it, but... I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Now, you, you're not stupid. You know that lying behind the theology that I just articulated is the doctrine of predestination and election. If God has sheep that he's chosen for himself and he gives the sheep to Jesus and because he gives them to Jesus, they recognize the voice of Jesus. This is God's sovereign movement. And you know as well as I do that many people have said, I hate that doctrine because it kills missions. In 1967, I I was of that mind more or less. I was a senior when I went to Urbana, 67. Raise your hand if you know Urbana, the missions guy. Have you ever heard of it? Okay, I just don't want to be speaking to the... I'm, I assume that. So I'm there in 1967. Anybody else there in 67? Okay, I'm, I'm 67 years old right now, so I didn't expect too many. And I was, I was not at all a Reformed person. This theology was not uh, in my mind or on my radar, and... Um, they had Q&A from the floor in those days. Had about 9,000 students, and they had an open mic. And they'd put the, the senior executives of the mission boards up there, and one of them was John Alexander from uh, InterVarsity. And he said uh, that he went to Pakistan... First, because he did not believe in predestination, and if he had believed in it, he wouldn't have gone. And I was thinking, yeah, that, that, that makes sense to me. It seems illogical. You know, God's chosen the people, then why would you need to go out there? And then he said, and after 20 years of serving in the hardest place in the world, now I wouldn't go unless I believed in predestination. That's what he said to me among those 9,000 students. And I just thought, whoa, really? If we think that we can awaken the dead, we have another think coming. You can't raise the dead. This teaching that God has a people. He has sheep. Among the peoples is a 
a, a dream builder, a hope giver. And the reason I say that is not because of any logic. I say it because of, for example, Acts 18, 9, and 10. Because when Paul was discouraged in Corinth, and he was afraid because he was about to be attacked again, this is what the Lord said to him in a dream at night. Verse 9. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not be silent, for I am with you. No man will attack you to harm you. I have many people in this city. To which Paul did not say, Well, if you've got them, I'm heading for Athens. Nobody gets saved without the preaching of the gospel. Nobody gets saved but by hearing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the gospel. So Paul was emboldened. I won't preach here in vain. There are sheep. They will hear the voice of the master in the gospel. I will preach the gospel with boldness because God has a people and he will call them. And that's the way Luke sums it up, isn't it? In another place, chapter 13, verse 48, he finishes preaching. And he goes out, and a few people attach to him. And Luke says, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Triumph! I got some of them. There's probably more in there, and the Holy Spirit's still working on them. And he was willing to lay his life down over and over and over again to reach the sheep. So that's the first thing. There are people that belong to Jesus out there. And they will not be saved if they don't hear the gospel. Number two, they are scattered outside the fold. And I'm going to underline the word scattered and apply that. And the reason I say scattered, even though that word is not used in verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And he doesn't say where they are. They're just not of this fold. But look at chapter 11, 51 and 52, where John explains a word of prophecy from the priest Caiaphas that he didn't even know what he was saying and John says he meant this. John eleven fifty one. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. What does that mean? I have other sheep. He calls them children of God here. They're scattered all over. And I am going to die to gather them. Does that remind you of any text in Revelation? Like one on a banner up here? You were slain. This is John. That, that surprise. It's not a surprise. John, Revelation writer, is going to now say what he says here in 11, 51. 
You were slain, and by your blood, you ransomed people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and made them a kingdom and, and, a, and people for your name. So, I have other sheep that are not of this fold combined with chapter 11. I'm going to gather, I'm going to die for and gather the children of God scattered and Revelation 5, 9, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. What hope? I mean, you're going to go, we're talking to the brothers from India here. India is just loaded with people groups. You go to the north and the, 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 the Hindu densities up there, very dangerous, very hard to reach, very inhospitable in some places. Same thing in all the Muslim lands of the Crescent. Same thing in communist North Korea, Vietnam. There are people groups out there, thousands of them, and when you get there, if you herald the blood of Jesus, the children will respond. Did you, do you remember the story of the, um, Zinzendorf, help me, I just, the name of his group just went on my mind. Moravians, the Moravian missionaries getting on the boat up in the Hamburg Harbor, sailing never to return to the South Sea Islands, and the last thing their relatives hear standing on the harbor as they sail away is, may the lamb receive the reward of his suffering. That's a quote from that verse. Revelation 5.9. He died to ransom people from the New Hebrides. That's number two. Number three. The third encouragement here is that the Lord has committed himself to bring his lost sheep home. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I'm in verse 16 still. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them. That's worth several hours worth of meditation. I must bring them. Isn't that the same thing he meant in Matthew 16 where he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I must bring them. They're out there. They're scattered all over. I bring them. I am the shepherd. I will be with you to the end of the age. Go make disciples. I must bring them. You might say, as hyper-Calvinists have mistakenly always said, so, William Carey, sit down. If God wants to reach the peoples of India, he will do it without you. That's the way a hyper-Calvinist talks. Unbiblically, through and through. Because when Jesus says, I must bring them, he doesn't mean without you. He means through you. 
as the Father, this is John again, Jesus talking in John 20, verse 21, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. Or chapter 17 of John, verse 20, amazing. He's praying. I do not pray for these only, but for those who will believe on me through their word. Through their word. When we speak the gospel, Christ speaks. And he calls his own. So he will bring them. And this is a sovereign word from our sovereign risen Christ. I must bring them. My sheep will hear my voice. I know them. I will bring them. You're only an ambassador, which is why Paul said in Romans 15, 18, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has wrought through me to win obedience from the Gentiles. Couldn't be clearer, could it? Through me, Christ is winning obedience from the Gentiles because he said, I must bring them. Oh, I hope you are fired to be one of these instruments. I mean, there isn't anything more amazing in the world than to be the instrument of the Almighty among the unreached peoples of the world. Or for that matter, among one unreached person in your neighborhood. Same dynamic. One more, and we're done. Therefore, since he promises, I will bring them, they will come. That's the last phrase in the verse. I have other sheep, verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will heed my voice. None of Christ's sheep finally reject his word. That's what it means to be his sheep. What else is going to keep you going in the hardest places in the world? After seven, eight, nine years of risking your life and your children's lives to speak the gospel in a hard, resistant Muslim, for example, place. What's going to keep you going? But the promises, they will heed my voice. Let me close with a story of how one great missionary found life-giving, life-sustaining, ministry-sustaining encouragement in John 10, 16. And I'll close with this. The person I'm speaking about is Cameron, Peter Cameron Scott. He's the founder of Africa Inland Mission. And the story read backwards looks stunningly successful. Read frontwards, it came this close to being nothing. He goes to Africa, gets sick, fever, has to come home, very discouraged. God strengthens his hand. He goes to Africa again, gets sick, has to come home, 
He's not sure he can do this again. But his brother is willing to go with him this time. And his name is John. So Peter and John. Scott. Go to Africa together. And in the very inscrutable providence of God, John gets the favor and dies. And Peter buries his brother with his own hands and stands by his grave and rededicates himself to the cause. And then he gets the fever and he goes home again. How would you be doing at this point? We're not talking airplanes here. <laughs> these are long interruptions in life. A lot of time to think on the boat. How would you do? Physically, he recovers and he goes to Westminster Abbey. Some of you know how this story turns out because you've read the book that I read, namely From Jerusalem to Erie and Jaya by Ruth Tucker. That's where I got this story. He goes to Westminster Abbey because he knows there's a grave there who just might inspire him. But he didn't know what was on the grave. And the grave is of David Livingstone, buried there. And he walks in and he walks up in front of this, I, I haven't been there, maybe some of you have, and there written on the stone or whatever it is, are these words, other sheep I have that are not of this fold, them I must bring also. And he kneels down, the story is, and he says, I'm going back. And this time, God gave him health and life and thousands of churches exist because of it. Thousands. Let's pray. So, Father, my prayer for myself at 67 is that I would not grow weary. I don't want to be on a glide path with regard to the mission of the world or the unreached peoples or the health of the church or the doctrinal depths or anything that makes for the glory of your name and the reaching of the lost and the penetrating the unreached peoples in the hardest places of the world and the strengthening of churches in this cause. And I know that those who took the trouble to come out here tonight on this theme feel the same right now. And I pray that you'd give everyone in this room the kind of concrete guidance for what to do with their lives, whether it's just right here, refining and focusing or whether it's something radically uprooted, I pray that we would know, we would discern. Pray that for Noel and me. And I pray it for everybody here that you would clarify and convict and loosen and, and cast out, like it says in Matthew 9, 35 to 38. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would cast out, throw out, laborers into his harvest. Lord, would you do that here as well as all the other good things? We thank you for our salvation. We don't deserve that Jesus died for us. We don't deserve that he called us. We don't deserve that he opened our eyes to see him as our savior. We don't deserve any of this. And therefore, like Paul said, we are debtors to the barbarians and to the Greeks. We are debtors. We're not boasting over anyone. We're underneath everyone as servants because you have served us so freely. So grant us 
your help, your strength, your courage, and your guidance, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.